We'll, we'll come back to this and talk about it maybe at a later time. Let's see what we can do in 30 minutes. Oh, I didn't come back to the flesh. So Barbara asked me last week after we went through this, these three systems, I said there were four. She said, well, what about this fourth system, the flesh? You guys want no secret? The programs of the church don't matter. You can change the programs as much as you want and you will not change the identity of the church. The attitudes, the structure, and the muscular system are the only things that matter to shaping a church. You can replace children's church with an Awana program. It won't change the way that the church acts, feels, behaves, because it all comes back to these muscles being used. There is a fourth or fifth system, though, and this is maybe the most important part of the church's anatomy, and that's the head. The head of the church. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 tells us who the head is. When we are instructed to grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. Although we are to do our utmost in serving the church, in participating in ministry, it is the power of Christ that makes everything work. Our text this evening is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The first thing I want to point out about this text in Hebrews is it already tells us why Jesus is the head of the church. The first reason is because of His name. He's the Savior. The names used in verse 20 for Jesus are the God of peace, Lord Jesus, and Great Shepherd. Matthew 1.21 tells us what Jesus' name means. When the angel appeared before Mary, they said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus literally means... Does anyone know what it literally means? Yeah, what? Ah, close. It means Jehovah saves. Jehovah, the covenant name of God, saves. Jehovah saves by His promise. It's the Greek version of the, the Hebrew name Joshua that we find in the Bible. Let me tell you something about Jesus' wonderful name. His name is the only name that will save. He's our Savior. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The other thing mentioned in Hebrews 13 verse 20, it's not just His name, but also His blood. 
How is it that he saves? But by his blood. In the Old Testament system, it was clear that there was this sprinkling of blood. In fact, does anyone think back to that scene where Moses is consecrating the, the, the tabernacle and he brings together Israel and he takes the blood and Man, it's a messy scene. He sprinkles it on everyone and everything. Everyone's covered in blood. And it's symbolic that nothing is worthy of God that has not been made pure for God. His blood is what cleanses us. His blood is what makes Him the Savior. Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus said, when speaking and instituting the Lord's Supper, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The significance of that is that through the Lord's Supper, there is a special blessing, a special communion taking place with God's people and the blood of the covenant that makes it possible for us to come before Him. Also, note that in verse 20, the word eternal covenant is used. Not only has this covenant that's been instituted by Christ's blood a new covenant, but it is eternal. It never runs out. It will not run out. It is lasting. And finally, also mentioned in verse 20, is that Christ is saving because of His resurrection. I kind of mentioned this a little bit this morning whenever Paul was preaching and he gets to the point where he discusses the resurrection it really is easy for us to just see the resurrection as the promise that one day Christians will be resurrected too. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That's true. The fact that Christ was raised from the dead is a promise that Christians will also be raised from the dead. But Christians, hear me. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead means more than that. It means that the Father was satisfied with the payment that He made for sin. It means that the work that was set out to be accomplished by the cross was accomplished. It is a promise that Christ has done what needed to be done. The resurrection means so much. Looking at Jesus as the head, He's not only head because He's Savior, He's also head because He's the great shepherd. In the New Testament, Christ is called shepherd three times. In, let me make sure I look at my notes, I'll get this wrong. John 10, verse 11, he's called the good shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, 4, he's called the chief shepherd. In Hebrews 13, verse 20, he's called the great shepherd. Think about the significance of that. In fact, we sang a song this morning about how he, like a shepherd, he guides us. I love that. That's a comfort to know that Christ, as the head of the church, guides His church. But think of the significance that the word shepherd would have in a cultural situation. Do you know what ungodly people were called in the Old Testament? If we looked up, if we had time, we could do this. But if you looked at Numbers 27, 17, 1 Kings 22, verse 17, 2 Chronicles 18, 16, Ezekiel 34, verse 5, Zechariah 10, 2, Matthew 9, 36, and Mark 6, 34. Ungodly people, do you want to say it? Okay. No. Ungodly people were called sheep without a shepherd. God's people are called sheep with a divine shepherd. 
That's the difference. We have a head that rules and leads us. What does that mean? Well, we're talking about what it means to shepherd folks, what it means to care for their needs. Sometimes we don't know what people need. If you've ever thought about what it means to care for your church members, you don't know what's going on in everyone's life, do you? I mean, as much as we try, there's some things that are just private. Well, how do we care for those people? Let me show you why it's so comforting that Christ is the chief shepherd and the great shepherd and the good shepherd. He's the one that shepherds them. We have to avoid the attitude in which we think that we are helping the Lord in ministry. We're not helping Him. He's working. He's the only one who can work. If that attitude is not first in our mind when we try to do anything ministry-related, we will fail. I really believe that. God must come first. My whole heart is in shepherding God's people. I've given my life to it. I've dedicated myself for that. I've been laid aside and ordained by men that have gone before me for that explicit purpose. But I don't think that I have given my life to shepherding because I think it depends on anything that I do. It's because God has called me. Because He leads me the same way that He leads each one of you. If we're going to be effective in ministry, we have to be followers of Christ. There's a twofold ministry that comes with Jesus being shepherd. The first part is that He equips the church. He equips the church through the giving of His Word, through gifting people with special gifts, spiritual gifts, for the explicit purpose of edifying and blessing the church, for purifying us. That's a tough one. You guys think about what that proof text is in 1 Peter. How does God purify us? Through trials. Through suffering. That's all part of God's plan. It's how He builds the church. Even the Word prunes us. It clips away at pieces of us so that we can be conformed to His image. The second part of Jesus' work as shepherd is that He protects us. He advocates for us. 1 John 2.1 says plainly that Christ is our advocate in heaven. What I love about this, when I think about the reality that all men are sinners... Not one exception exists outside of the Lord Jesus Christ who dwelt among men perfectly without sin. Is that even though we are sinners, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father advocating on our behalf. You can imagine, some of you, if you're familiar with the book of Job, when Satan starts to bring accusation against godly people before God. And he says, well, look at this what he's done. Look at this is what he's done. Look at this is what he's done. I imagine the conversation happening like this. 
Here's God the Father. Here's Satan bringing charges against Christians. And here's Jesus Christ. Father, that sin I paid for. There's not a charge that can be brought against God's people. That's pretty incredible. Because He is the Savior and the Shepherd. Third, He's also sovereign. He's sovereign. It's important to recognize that when we talk about God as a ruler or leader or head of the church. Verse 20 in Hebrews chapter 13 uses the word Lord. Now we read past that word Lord sometimes. We talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be really clear what the word Lord means. When used in the Greek, the word Lord means someone with absolute authority. Absolute authority. Unquestioning authority. Christ is Lord. When we appeal to people to make Him Lord of their life, we're not just appealing to believe in Him, but we are appealing to surrender to Him, to admit our need of a Savior, to depend on Him, to follow Him even if we don't understand why He's telling us to do the things He's telling us to do. That's what it means to make Christ Lord of your life. The fact that He is Lord is emphasized in Ephesians 1, and verse 23, where it makes it clear that all things have been put in subjection under His feet. All things are under His control. The same sentiment is found in Colossians verse, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, where that phrase, firstborn, is used to emphasize that Christ is not only the example, but He is the preeminent one before all of creation. There are two places where God's sovereignty rule shows up in the church. First is in how He rules the church. We've already said that He's the head of the church. He's also the judge of the church. He's the judge of the church. He commands and dictates letters. If you think back to our study through Revelation chapter 1 where we see the image of the glorified Christ in heaven, He judges the church. He's also the church's mediator. Who can tell me what Matthew chapter 18 verse 20 is about? Matthew chapter 18. For wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am with them. Right? And that text is particularly in reference to church discipline. When it says, where one or two are gathered in my name, what is being taught is where two believers come to agreement, I am with them, leading them in this. So in the issue of church discipline, when two people come together to address sin, that's Christ's leadership through multiple people. Matter of fact, it's one reason why some people advocate that churches should have more than one pastor. And just in commenting on that, because I've been thinking about it this week, I really just don't think that's, that makes sense. I think churches can have one pastor. I think it's wise if there's more than one. But do you know how I think it works when there's only one pastor? I think the most important thing is that the pastor acknowledges his need for other people to speak into his life. I think it's important that the pastor recognizes that and even seeks out people 
who will speak into his life. I don't know how I'm doing on that. I asked three people about two years ago to come and talk to me if there's anything that came up. One of them's not in the church anymore. So I've only got two left. I do trust those people and appreciate them. They share the pastoral burden. That was just kind of an aside, getting off topic. God's sovereignty in the church also exists in the way that He teaches the church. Now, He teaches not just through His Word. He teaches through the Spirit. He promises to send the counselor that the church would be guided. This is a core part of how God teaches His church, how Christ is sovereign in His church. Because when the Helper comes, who He has sent to us from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, bears witness about Christ to believers. What does that mean? If Christ rules the church and teaches the church, what is the role of a pastor? Would it be the voice? Here's how I think about it. Pastors are simply like waiters. They deliver the meal that Christ has already prepared. Their job is to deliver it hot and fresh without messing it up, without letting it slide all over the plate. Sometimes we do a better job than others. But pastors really aren't delivering anything that comes from themselves, not if they're doing a good job. And fourth, the final point, Christ is also the sanctifier of the church. Sanctifier. He sets us apart from sin. He purifies the church. He does this, he does this through all sorts of means. He purifies the church through correction. You might even call that discipline. He sanctifies the church. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that we don't like to talk about. Sometimes people die, and that's how he purifies the church. Just trying to cover all my bases biblically. He purifies the church through addition. At the end of the day, God sanctifies or purifies the church because he calls his people together. That's why it's called ecclesia, called out ones. He calls his people together. John 10, verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The promise in Ephesians chapter 5, when talking about husbands and wives, Paul says, and I'm not really talking about husbands and wives, but this mystery is actually the church. Christ purifies His church like a bride. He purifies her so that He can present her to Himself without spot or blemish. Christ doesn't ask us to build His church. We look at the anatomy of the church and everything that the church can do and exercises like this I think are good. They're helpful. They help us to see maybe what's been overlooked. They help us to kind of cling to what God can do and He helps us to seek and evaluate ourselves. These are all important practices. Actually, they're part of Bible study. But are we the ones that are going to build God's church? Let me ask you a question. Does the Bible say in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock you'll build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's right, it doesn't. What does it say? Who builds the church? Who's the foundation of the church? Not just in the anatomy, but who is the one that ensures that His church exists? God is the only one that builds His church. God does not ask Christians to build His church. He's the only one who can do that. But He allows us, some of us to plant, some of us to water, and He gives the increase. And I'm so glad you said that. Because I think the natural question is, if God doesn't ask us to build His church, why in the world do we work so hard at it? Because there is nothing more glorious, marvelous, thrilling, exciting than being a part of the work that Jesus Christ is doing. There's nothing greater that we can give ourselves to in this world and in life. There's nothing more important or long-lasting than serving the church. Let us not make that mistake that we think our serving is building it when He's the one that does the work. 